This is the Rise City Church Sermon Podcast. We are a church in Gresham, Oregon, on a mission to rise up and saturate our city with the gospel. We would love for you to join us on Sundays. For more information, check out our website, rise.cc. Whether you already follow Jesus or are exploring Christianity, we hope that you experience the power of God through this message. Why is it that steps towards God and faith are so often met with resistance? Why do temptations to cave, compromise, or call it quits abound? In the pages of the Bible, we learn about a battle that rages beneath, a spiritual force at work under the surface. Our opposition is described in three categories, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Three enemies poised against our progress in Christ. As the devil schemes to deceive us and the flesh desires to distract us, and a world set on establishing this broken state as idyllic, it is time to unmask the face of our enemy and fight back. Through the gospel, their power is shattered, the enemy is vanquished, and power to overcome by faith is unleashed. There is a real spiritual conflict, but Jesus is the great conqueror. Let us strengthen our souls for war, prepare our minds for battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Whoa, how are we doing this morning, Rise City Church? Yes. Oh, man, that, that uh, bumper gets me fired up. So grungy and rebellious. It's so good. I love it. So, hey, so I have been gone for the last, like, week and a half. I was uh, traveling in the Middle East and then India. There's an organization we work with that's planting churches. And I just got to go experience uh, what they're doing and see how our church has been partnering with them. And I can't wait to share just in the coming weeks and months uh, some of the impact of that and what that looks like. But one of the things that we did was, uh, you know, we went and visited these churches. And the last day, we just had kind of a tourist day where we're traveling around India. And they're like, hey, we're going to go to the border of India and Pakistan. And there's a changing of the guard. And we're going to watch that. I was like, that sounds so boring, but that's fine. You know, I was, you know, I was picturing Buckingham Palace, you know, 30 of us. Us, like gather around, like seeing these, you know, people march out. And so we go and we, you know, we kind of go through security and we park and we're walking up and it is not a group of, you know, a couple dozen people watching, you know, people in funny hats just change positions. It is a stadium of 25,000 people on the India side and then another 10,000 on the Pakistan side and they're like cheering and dancing and chanting and like yelling at each other, right? So this group of like me and like, you know, 10 other American pastors are like sitting in the front row just like, what is happening right now? Like, what, like what, where are we at? And so they begin this, you know, this ritual. Apparently, they've been doing this for 60 years. Every single night at sunset, these people gather together from the countries and have this changing of the guard, okay? And what happens is the, the soldiers start marching out to take place of th- those who are guarding the border, and they do these little, you know, dances and cheers and chants, and it's like choreographed between these two countries, and we're literally, the whole time, I'm like, I don't even know how to process, like, what I'm seeing. Like, there's so much animosity and anger, yet, like, you know, fashion and beauty involved, you know, like, okay? And so they get to this point, it's kind of this climactic point where, you know, the soldiers get to the border, and there's this giant gate on each side, and the gate opens up. Like, the border is now open, and these soldiers that have, like, swords and spears, 
and guns are like standing face to face. And we're just like, I, I, I mean, I kid you not, all of us are just, we don't even know like what is happening or what is about to happen. And, and they're facing each other and, and the, there's music going and, and the gate opens up and all of a sudden they all reach back and they high five each other across the border. And we're just literally like, what, like, what country, what world are we in right now? And then they turn around and they finish their little dance, their music, and, and the gate closes. Now, these are two countries that have deep animosity towards each other, okay? They were divided in a moment in the 1940s. They, they've had war, like brief war stints with each other as recently as 2019. And yet every single night at sunset, they walk through this display. And so we're asking, you know, the, these Indian leaders afterwards, like, what did we just see? What just happened? And they say, well, this is something that, that was decided 63 years ago, and we've done it every night for 63 years. It's a way for us to distract ourselves from the animosity that we have towards each other and put on this display, and we kind of just like pretend like we like each other. And I'm like, well, you kind of were yelling at each other. Yeah, but we high-fived and we had feathers, right? <laughs> and I'm thinking how easily we convince ourselves and we deceive ourselves that there's, a, there, there's not a war going on around us. And then I come home, and I sit on my screen porch, and I sip my iced coffee, and I read my Bible, and I pet my cat, right, you know? And I'm like, how easily do I convince myself that there is not a battle going on around me? We have, you guys, we have lulled ourselves into, into thinking and perceiving that there is, is not a spiritual battle taking place. But here's what I need you to see. And here's what we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks. You guys, we are actually at war. There is a spiritual war going on for our souls. And I don't just mean, l listen, I'm talking to you who are followers of Jesus, but I'm also talking to you who are not followers of Jesus. There's some of you who are just checking out church for the first time, and you see this like world flesh devil, and you're like, like what did I just walk into? Or maybe you saw that, you're like, I'm going to that. Like, that sounds awesome, right? Okay? But there is a war, there is a battle for your soul taking place right now, and we're starting to feel it. It's been easy for the last handful of decades to be like, no, like everything's great and lovely and dandy and it's fine, but we're starting to feel it. The animosity, the depression, the division, the anger. Many of you who've been a part of church for you know, years or decades, you've begun to see brothers and sisters in Christ fall off, haven't you? People that you once served side by side with, people who you once would, you would pray with you would sit and read the scriptures, and now you find yourself looking at these last two years like, whatever happened to them? Now, some of them, they've gone to other churches, and we actually celebrate that. That's great. But a lot of them have not. You have people who have disappeared. And, and here's what I need you to hear. That's because there is a spiritual battle taking place. And honestly, Rise, we don't even know, we don't even understand how good we have it. As I spent time with other pastors and leaders, I spent time last week with one denominational leader. He said, look, the average for our churches for versus uh, pre-COVID, post-COVID, we're down, we're 30% of the people in our churches than we were pre-COVID. Like, we are losing, like, for context, you know, Rise has basically tripled during COVID. All these other churches have gone to a third during COVID. We, we 
have experienced the grace of God in an incredible way, but I want us to see and to understand that there is a war for our soul taking place, okay? And the three enemies of the soul, listen, this is what we need to look at. It's not a, a war of guns and bombs. It's not a war against people. It is a war between our souls and these three great enemies. And I don't know about you, but listen to me. I want to finish the race. Man, I, I want to, I want to, when I, I don't want to just say I started and I strived after Jesus, but I fell off. I don't want people to ever say, hey, what happened to that guy? I want to be somebody who falls more and more in love with Jesus. I don't want to be a casualty of this culture and the things we're experiencing, the things that are happening around us. I want to be passionate, more passionate about Jesus with every passing day. And so we need to be a people that actually observe. So this is what we're gonna be looking at. This is why we're looking at world flesh devil. Now, I get it, it's kind of edgy, right? You know, why, why would we use words like this? It's because I want you to remember in this battle who your enemy is. I don't want you to mistake. Look, we could have come up with some cute little title, Finding Peace in the Platitude of Politics. It's wonderful. Oh, yeah, come join us. It's no, world, flesh, devil. Because I want you to recognize when the enemies are coming at No, no, no. This is the world trying to distract me from the goal in which God has called me to. No, this is the flesh in me seeking desires that are less than what God has for me. No, this is the voice of the enemy. This is the devil distracting me and pushing me away. And so to, to, to kind of start our series, I want to give a little bit of context of why it feels like war, why we're experiencing what we're experiencing, and then we're going to look at Ephesians 2 and kind of set some ground rules for, for, for battle as we move forward. So what's happened is over the last handful of years, and this has been building up and then it was just amplified during the last two, is there's been a three shifts spiritual shifts that have taken place in our culture, and in particular in the West and in, in our community in which we find ourselves, um, that, that we're experiencing, that we're feeling. Okay, The first shift is a shift from spiritual majority to spiritual minority. Okay, As followers of Jesus, you used to be uh, the spiritual majority. A majority of, uh, of people in our country would identify as followers of Jesus. They would say they were, they, they were Christians, okay? And, and so what we are now a spiritual minority, okay? And so we're not necessarily, it, we're not an ethnic minority, uh, it, although fascinating if you look at the landscape of Christianity across the world. The average Christian is not a white American. The average Christian, is, you're going to find them in places like Africa, and places like India and China where Christianity is absolutely exploding, okay? But we are what sociologists would call a cognitive minority, meaning our worldview and our value system, what we build it around, and our practices and our social norms, they are increasingly at odds with those in our host culture. Are you seeing that? Are, are, are your children experiencing that? We are not, what we value what we build our lives around, it is not, we are now a spiritual minority. And we're facing this constant pressure, both from the right and the left politically, to assimilate and follow the crowds. Barna, uh, they did a study. And what they did is they, they looked at young adults that grew up in the church. So th this is young adults, 18 to 29. And they, they, they asked them all these questions and looked at their behavior. And, and this is kind of how they broke down. Now, again, this is young adults that grew up in the church. And they said, where are you at now in your faith? And, and so there's basically four categories in which they would find themselves now. 22%, almost one in four, are ex-Christians. They will not even identify as a Christian anymore. 30% are 
are, are what they categorize as nomads. So they would say, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm a believer. I'm, I'm still a Christian. I just don't go to church or read my Bible or pray, right? So, so th- th- that's about half of, of young adults, okay? 38% is what they would categorize as habitual churchgoers. And what they say in that, the reason they categorize them that way, is yes, they attend church about once a month, but do they actually uh, believe in the authority of Scripture? Do they actually believe in Jesus' death and, and resurrection? Like, no, some of that is just, it's just fable. I'm not involved, I'm not serving. And only 10% of 18 to 29-year-olds that grew up in church is what they would categorize as resilient disciples, people that are still following Jesus, that submit to the authority of the scriptures, that, that, that uh, would confess that Jesus died on the cross literally, and that he rose again physically, and that are actually wanting to see the gospel. Now, this is of young adults that grew up in church. That's not, that's not over, overall. This, we've become such an incredible minority. And you know when this survey and this observation was made? 2018, right? 2018 feels like a different world. And so, so this is what we're experiencing. This is what we're seeing. We're seeing this shift from a spiritual majority to spiritual minority. Second shift is Christianity has moved from a holding place of honor Oh, man, we respect, we honor, to a holding place of shame. Like, there is no respect for anybody who holds to biblical values anymore. In our culture, we, we, we don't see that, okay? Larry Osborne put it like this. He says, in a few short decades, our, church, our culture's response to Bible-believing Christians has gone from grudging respect to a patronizing pat on the head to a marginalizing indifference to outright hostility. This is what we've experienced, Right? Right, how many of you guys would say you kind of grew up in the 90s? Any, anybody with me in this room? Well, yeah, we're my ni- yeah, exactly, okay? So, and those of you guys who grew up pre-90s, you'll still understand this. But in the 90s, there was this cultural icon that just represented Christianity to its core. And if somebody was like, hey, what's a Christian like? They would say, oh, this is what a Christian's like, okay? Um, and, and that person was, was Ned Flanders, Right? Yodely dodely, right? And we, you know, you'd see that. You'd be like, oh, that's not us. We're not that dorky. You know, our pants aren't that high, you know, right? You know? And, and so, like, I don't know. How, maybe you guys were good Christians. I grew up not allowed, you know, to watch The Simpsons or wrestling, okay? Um, but if I went into my parents' room, it was in a long hallway. I realized, like, I could actually watch The Simpsons, and I would hear them coming up the stairs, and I'd be able to change it, you know, before they got in. So like, what are you watching? Oh, just VeggieTales, just growing my faith, mother, you know? I'm just praying, you know, right? And then they leave, and Bart Simpson gets back on there, you know, right? Okay, but, but it was this icon, this symbol. Oh, that's what Christians are. They're these dorky, but super nice. They love their family. Family, that, like, I would take Ned Flanders at this point. If somebody looked at Christians like Ned Flanders, I'd be like, man, what, what, you honor me with your words, right? <laughs> there has been such a drastic change. It is a place of shame. Even if you go to courthouses, right, all across America, you go down to courthouses, what is etched in stone on these courthouses? It's the words of Scripture, now, people will argue left and right, well, they're not a Christian nation. This, some of the most influential founders of this country, some of the morals and laws were built on people being followers of Jesus. 
that all the major institutes across America, you know how a lot of them started? Training centers for pastors. These Ivy League schools, you know, scientists and doctors were, were people of faith. Even pastors were once respected. I used to be able to, you know, people would be like, oh, what do you do? Like, if somebody asked me what I do, I'm a graphic designer every time, right? <laughs> right? Because I want to have a good, oh, oh, art, that's wonderful, that's beautiful, right? I want to continue the conversation, you know? I Jesus juke them, and then later I trick them and tell them I'm a pastor, right? Okay? But because there's been this shift, here's the third shift, is the tectonic shift from widespread tolerance to rising hostility. See, while as a follower of Jesus, um, you were once viewed as just like weird and dorky subset of culture, you are now viewed as dangerous and toxic. Like, like imagine telling your neighbor that you hold to what, what Christians have taught for centuries about the sanctity of marriage between one, way, one man and one woman. You're now a bigot that used to be honored or at least tolerated, and now there's this level of hostility. Try sharing with your professor at your school, that you believe there is an intelligent and intentional design behind all of creation, and, um, and watch your grades drop, because they, they just think you're, you're a complete imbecile and an, and an idiot. Silence is now violence, right? Apolitical is now apathetic. These are things that people are moving against. There was even, um, a, a, like in the last few weeks, I was reading this quote by this Oscar-winning actress, okay? I'm not trying to put her on blast, so I don't even need to say her name, but person of influence. She said, I can't bleep with people who aren't political anymore. You live in the United States of America. You have to be political. It's too dire. Politics are killing people. That is the posture. Politics is the new religion of our country, and, if, and, and you, you are this apathetic atheist if you follow anything else other than a political party. I, I told you I was in the Middle East this last week. Here, here's a picture I found of, of people gathering around in masks, gas masks, and, and, and burning Bibles. But here's what's crazy. This was not in the Middle East, okay? This was downtown Portland, just within the last, the, you want to expand that out? Uh, downtown Portland within the last couple of years. Like, this is what, we, this is what we're experiencing. You, church, listen to me. We are exiles in Babylon. We need to understand that we can't just like fluffy our way through faith anymore. We can't just say, oh, isn't this cute? Like I have my, you know, I have my little study and we drink our tea. No, there is a war, a spiritual war going around us for our souls for the souls of your, your children. And we need to be able to identify what is taking place and the enemy. And so the, even, uh, even the apostle Peter, when, he, when he's writing this letter, he opens up, he says, to God's elects, elect exiles scattered. And then he ends it with she, talking about a church, she who is in Babylon sends her greeting. He, he takes this picture of the Old Testament of people of exiled. What does it mean to be exiled? It, you, you're not even at home in your own country because what your, your land and the world around you stands for is in such contrast. You are a minority who is marginalized because you, will, you are unwilling to conform to the tyranny of majority opinion. And so this is what we find ourselves and where we find ourselves. And so th this last week, I was sitting on a plane, and I was, I was sitting next to this pastor in Texas. And it's so funny to hear uh, when somebody, when, when people ask where you're from, and, I, you know, just for, for anybody, anybody else, nobody knows where Gresham is, right, you know? And so 
Um, I always just say Portland, and everybody's reaction, like, whoa, like, you're Portland, and this guy's from Texas. And so I'm sitting there talking to him, and, and I'm like, hey, tell me about your family. Like, I want to know about your family. We got a few hours on a plane, so I'm just, you know, asking questions, just peppering him with questions. And he starts to tell me about his brother and his brother's family and what's happening um, in his brother's family. He starts to go through the list of, of how they were raised to be Christians, yet all of them are falling apart. Uh, uh, the divorce that is rampant, what's happening in their kids and teenagers and transitionings that, that is happening. And just it goes through story after story after story of heartbreak. He goes, but there's one rebel in the family. And I'm like, uh-oh. Like of all these things I've heard, I'm about to hear the worst one. And, and, and he goes, actually that rebel lives right near you. He, he, he lives in the Portland area. And he is the most rebellious in the entire family because he's a Bible-believing, church-loving, family-honoring follower of Jesus. He says that's what it means to be a rebel today in today's day and age. And I thought, how beautiful is that? I was like, I kind of want to like claim that. Like, like let's be rebels. Let, let's be rebels because we follow Jesus wholeheartedly, amen? Like, let's be a minority that says, no, this is not about how do we win culture, how do we win politics, no, how do we follow Jesus recklessly no matter what is happening around us? And so I'm like, world flesh devil, man. Like, let's get the skateboards out in the lobby and let's follow Jesus no matter what it takes. Let's be people who actually believe that God has spoken to us in these scriptures. Let's be people who actually believe we're called to be humble servants to a sovereign Lord. Let's be people who actually believe it's more blessed to give than to receive. Let's be people who follow Jesus's radical call to lay down our lives no matter the cost. Let's be people who believe there's more than just the physical world, that there is a spiritual battle taking place. There's a spiritual realm for our souls. And let's be people who follow Jesus in radical obedience, no matter the cost. Let's be rebels for Jesus. Amen? So let's walk forward. And so here's what I would just want to be careful of. Because it's easy to be like, oh man, there's this war going on, right? There's this battle. And some of you guys, like, this is your first Sunday. And you're like, what did I just like what kind of rally did I just walk into? This is intense, man. Like, this is crazy in the music and all the people. What we're, when I say there is a war, we need to actually identify who the enemy is. And I need, to be care I need you to hear right off the bat, the enemy is not the people around you. You're called to love your neighbor. And as followers of Jesus, this war we're entering into, it's a spiritual war. And it's not a war that's won with guns and bombs. It's not a war that's won with politics and papers and positions and tweets and social media. It's won through humble people being willing to follow Jesus and love the world around us. That's how victory is established in Jesus' kingdom. So do me a favor, open your, that's just my intro. Open your Bibles, all right? Okay. Open your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2. And let's look at this. Let's look at our, so if we're entering this, let's look at the rules of engagement, okay? And you 
were dead in your trespasses and sins in which, you, in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. And the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's the first thing that we need to, the first rule of engagement, identify the enemy. Know who the enemy is. See, we want to believe what's wrong with the world is other people. And so for liberals, it's conservatives, right? And for conservatives, it's, it, it, it's liberals. We're, we're const- they're the, I mean, did we not just have a president within the last couple weeks? I was gone. I didn't know what, stand up and, no, this is the enemy. Like, we're, we're constantly pointing to other people. And this is a problem. This is not what scripture calls us to. For the religious, it's the pagans. For the pagans, it's the religious. For the mask wearers, it's the anti-vaxxers. For the anti-vaxxers, it's the, like, we're, we're in this battle pointing at each other. But notice every one of these categories, all the things you hear in media, news, and even you've started to think all of those are other people. And if your answer to what's wrong with the world starts with a group of people, you've already gotten the answer wrong according to biblical truth. We need to be a people who identify the enemy. Your neighbor is not your enemy. I don't care where they stand politically. I don't care where they stand religiously. I don't care where they stand on marriage. I don't care where they stand on, they are not your enemy. They are a child of God who Jesus wants to seek after and wants to use you to lovingly draw them into his family. That is the position we need. Jesus, he tells this parable, and, and we think it's this cute little parable because we don't understand it. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And so we, you know, we're like, oh, isn't that wonderful? Like, let's call it our hospital, the Good Samaritan, right? Do you know why Jesus told this parable? Because the Jews, who he was speaking to, hated the Samaritans. And he's, he's like throwing it in their face. He's like, these people you hate, I love. And, and he's pointing this picture and giving them this example. He's like, guess what? I can even redeem them and use them to expand my kingdom and do goodness in this world and in the kingdom. And, and this is the pot, whatever fill in the blank for you, Whatever group of people you feel animosity towards, you've gotten it wrong. Your neighbor is not your enemy. Listen, that liberal professor who hates you for carrying your Bible to class, they are not the enemy. That prideful politician who represents everything you think is wrong with our country, they are not your enemy. Your lesbian neighbors who, you th- who think you're a bigot for going to church, they're not your enemy. They are image bearers of God who Jesus longs to redeem and bring into his family. This is the posture we have to have. Those gang members who deal drugs and get into turf wars at the park just down the street, they are not the enemy. Jesus longs to redeem them. I, like, I, I hope these categories make you uncomfortable because that's what Jesus is doing. Whatever the category, fill in the blank, Jesus wants to redeem and love and he wants to use you to be a source of light and goodness. And this is why Paul is laying out the theology of what's wrong with the world. And he goes through and he categorizes them. What's wrong with the world? What's the enemy? It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the enemy. We see it here in this passage, following the course of the world, right? For we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. What's wrong is the distractions around us. What's wrong is the desires within us, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference 
to Satan himself. So these first Christians, they were wide awake, much more than we are, to the reality that our fight is not against flesh and blood. There is a spiritual battle. It's the world around us, the flesh within us, and the devil in the unseen realm. J.C. Ryle, old theologian, he puts it like this. He says, the principal fight for the Christian is with the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are their never-ending foes. These are the three chief enemies against whom the Christian must wage war. Unless they get the victory over these three, all other victories are useless and vain. But with a corrupt heart, a busy devil, and an ensnaring world, the Christian must either fight or be lost. And so, over the next three weeks, we're going to really look at each of these in depth. Because I want you, as you're following Jesus, and things begin to pull you away, things begin to distract you, I want you to feel equipped and empowered by the gospel to say, to recognize, no, 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 oh, this is not the voice of the Lord speaking into truth into my identity in Christ. This is the voice of the enemy. This is not the spirit guiding me. This is my flesh desiring. This is not the good and glorious things that God has for me. This is the world, and I'm settling for much less. I want you to be able to recognize and identify these things. Okay, and so this, but that's the first step. We have to identify the enemy. But the next thing we need to do is we need to embrace the power of grace. Look how Paul moves forward in this. But, okay, this is who you were. You were corrupt, you were broken. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You guys, grace is the whole story. Yeah, I love this. It's not like it starts with grace and then it moves on to your own strength and will. Like, grace the whole way. What we need is we need the grace of God. And so we, if we're gonna resist, if we're gonna press on, if we're gonna move in our calling, we need to constantly, every day, over and over, embrace the power of grace. There is nothing we can say or do to elicit more or less of the lavish love of God. That's grace. Grace only comes about by the goodness of Jesus Christ. Grace is God working, not you working. Grace is Jesus earning, not you earning. It's grace, 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 grace. All day, every day, into the future, forever. We need to build our lives around the grace of Jesus and the goodness of God. This is our identity. Look at in this passage, there's this list of what grace is. This is just a snippet. Grace is a sign of God's mercy. Grace is evidence of God's great and greatest love. Grace is what makes us alive. Grace is what saves us. Grace is what gives us a position in eternity that we do not deserve. It says he placed us at the right hand of Christ. We don't deserve that. It's but grace. That's our new identity. Grace is God's kindness displayed to us through Jesus. I saw this video the other day. I'm like dad of the year, and I just loved it. And I'm like, this is grace, okay? Right? Yeah. Okay. 
Next time you think like, I'm doing it. I'm amazing. I want you to just picture this, right? This is grace. You're like, I'm incredible. I'm amazing. Look at this. It's, all these other kids are dropping and mine just keeps going, right? Right? Grace. See, all, the whole story is God's grace. I found Jesus. Nope. Jesus found you. That's grace. I kicked my addiction. Nope. God set you free. Grace. I finally got my life together. Nope, God is restoring you. That's grace. I will defeat the enemies that hold me back. No, but if you learn, learn to lean on the grace of God, he will establish his victory in your life by grace through faith. God will not run out of grace. Every reason for God's mercy and love is actually found in him, and that is such good news. It's not something you can earn, not something you can do, not if you just resist more. No, lean on his grace over and over and over. We need to stop trying to make ourselves more lovable to God and simply receive his great love while recognizing that we are unworthy of it, and there's something beautiful and freeing in that. Man, it's Jesus. It's his work. It's his good. And see, here's what's incredible. Grace is its past, present, and future. You know what saved you in the past? It's the grace of God is what saved you. That's what saved you. But you know what saves you here now today? It's grace. See, we have this concept, if you are a follower of Jesus, where we look back and we're like, man, I'm so grateful for what God did in my past and the grace that he had. But now that I'm in the present, I just need to try harder. <laughs> because like I used my grace quotient, Right? Like, I used it all, like, man, those teenage years were rough. That was a lot of Simpsons, right? You know, okay? Like, no, I've used it up, so now I need to earn God's love. I need to earn it. No, no, no. Guess what? Guess what today? You know what you need today? Grace. And you know what you're going to need in the future? You know what's going to sustain you for all eternity? It's grace. So as we look at this idea, man, we're at war. There's a spiritual battle around us. What do we need? We need grace, you guys. We need to throw ourselves on the mercy of a, of a merciful and glorious and loving Lord Jesus. And here's what I need you to hear. His grace will never run dry. Like, if you're like me, there's probably times in your life where we're like, yeah, yeah, but like how much, how much until God's like, no, nah, nah, like I've shown you enough grace. Now it's condemnation and I'm done with you. His grace will never run dry. The prince of preachers himself, Charles Spurgeon, he put it like this. He says, so it is with grace of, of God. He has as much grace as you want and he has a great deal more than that. He overflows all the demands that can be, ever be made on the grace of God will never impoverish him or even diminish his store of mercy. There will remain an incalculably precious mine of mercy as full as when he first began to bless the sons of men. His grace will never run dry. And so as you walk through this battle and you get tired of falling down and you get tired of feeling beaten up, can you just remind yourself over and over, like it's grace that saved you. It's grace that is saving you and it's grace that will ultimately save you. Man, grace, grace, grace. It's there. It's available to us. We just have to walk in it. Uh, I had this interesting experience while, while I'm traveling, 
And uh, so basically, I flew from Portland to Amsterdam, and then from Amsterdam, I was flying to Dubai. And, uh, you know, it's a 10-hour flight, and I'm, you know, I don't sleep a wink, I'm exhausted. And uh, I, I had to take all these, you know, you're going to these different countries, they all have different rules, and so I'm taking all these, constantly taking all these different COVID tests, and I got my paperwork and all this stuff. And so I land in Amsterdam, and I just sit there, literally just sit there for like two hours and just wait. And then right as they're boarding the flight, uh, they come on and make an announcement. They're like, hey, since you're flying to Dubai, uh, you have to have your negative COVID test, and it has to have a QR code on it. And if you don't have a QR code, um, you can't get on the flight. And so I'm like, cool. I got my paperwork, and I pull it out. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, I know what a QR code is. I know what it looks like, and I don't see one on my paper, right? And I'm having this like little mini like panic attack, like what's, what, what's going on? And so I start flipping through and figuring out, and I go through, and they had sent me this test to take. And so it was negative, and I, and I go through, and I look, and, and what I realized after reading all their, I'm trying to, you know, I'm on customer support, I'm like, I need that QR code, like I would like to go on my trip, you know? And, and I realized like, oh, you, you followed the instructions on, on the test. I'm like, yeah, that's what you should do. And it was proctored and all this stuff. They're like, oh, that was for if you just want it for your own self-reporting. Okay. They're like, yeah, if you want a QR code to get into countries, you were supposed to go a different route. Like, like add this extra, you know, these extra steps in there. And so now I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I've, I've just like, tr I'm I've rearranged all my plans. I'm like traveling the world. Like I'm ready to get on this flight. And so I'm kind of like, you know, freaking out. Like, what do I do? And all this stuff. And so they're, they're calling, they're boarding everybody. And so I just go up and I have my, you know, I have my test and my ticket and they have to verify and they just sign it and put me on there. And so I sit on the plane and, but now I'm like, okay, now I'm like a little bit more of a panic. I'm like, now I'm, ab I'm about to land in the United Arab Emirates. I'm about to land in the Middle East where they're like, well, you need your QR code. I don't like, and like, or you don't get in our country or we throw you in prison for the, I don't know what's going to happen, you know? And so I start, um, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm texting, you know, my wife and friends and staff and I'm like, hey, here's the situation. Be praying, okay? Like, I want to, I don't want to sit there like for days upon days. Like, pre, please pray. I, when I land, I can get in, okay? So I, I'm like, I'm not a stressor. I'm stressed, Okay? The whole flight, I'm like, ah, oh, what's gonna happen? Like, you know, am I gonna be in prison with Iago? Like, what, like, what, you know, what, what is this gonna look like? And so um, I get there, and I go up to immigration, you know, and I have my passport, and I have all my documentation, all this kind of stuff. And like, I'm telling you, these are intimidating-looking men, right? And so I walk up, and they grab my passport, they scan, they scan my face, they're like, okay, get in there. And I like walk through, and I'm like, okay, where are they gonna like do this thing? And then I like go and I grab my luggage and like I like walk, walk out <laughs> and I get my ride and I get to the hotel and I'm like, I, I think I'm good, right? Okay, so I start talking to these other pastors, and I'm like, I'm like, this is amazing. Like, what just happened? Like, you know, I'm like, I'm like, I, they were supposed to check my thing, they didn't check my thing. They're like, no, 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 no. They don't check your thing in Dubai, they check it before you get on the plane. That's when the miracle happened, because you never should have got on that plane. And I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, I get on the plane, and I'm like, that's when I start asking everybody to pray. That's when I start stressing. And I start asking everybody to pray for something that God has already answered, right? <laughs> that is what grace is. Before you even ask for it, Jesus has already done all the work. 
Before you even cry out, Jesus has already made a way. This is why we have to build our lives upon grace. And last thing, the last rule of engagement is complete your mission. This is what it, how he ends the passage. It's all building up towards something. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You guys, God in his grace, he's already prepared the way for you. See, there's a purpose behind all of this. We're not battling for battle's sake. We're not warring against the enemies of our soul for warring's sake. Like, if that was the case, why don't we just all become monks and hide in the hills and just spend our days praying and drinking tea? No, that's not what we're called to as followers of Jesus. We're called to be kingdom bringers. We're called to be on a mission. So God doesn't save us merely to save us from wrath that we rightly deserve, but also to make something beautiful out of us. That word workmanship, the, the Greek word is, is the word poema. You know what it means? It means beautiful poem. He's saying you are God's beautiful story to the world. And all of this is for a purpose, this grace this battle, this redemption, it's for a purpose. Our, our rescue from the enemies of the world, flesh and devil, it's for a purpose that you have something to do in this life. You realize that? That this isn't just about you being righteous and holy. Yes, he wants to make you righteous and holy, but it's righteous and holy for a purpose so you can point to the glory and the goodness of God. So, so you can show love and grace and redemption and hope to the people around you, man, that we would not be taken out by the enemy, that we would actually be effective for the king. When we were traveling around India, one of the things they kept telling us the stories about is, is these church planters that would go into a city, an unreached people group, and start to share the gospel. And villagers would come out, and they would start beating them. And, and these, these churches, actually, some of them we were going to go visit uh, that very Sunday uh, many of them had different people show up with, literally with swords, grab all their Bibles and start burning their Bibles and threatening them. Like, don't you ever gather again here in this community. And yet the gospel keeps going forward. The first day we're there, they graduated 300 church planters. And I don't mean like, hey, you did the study. In order to graduate, they had to, have to, they had to already plant a church of 15 to 20 people. The second day we were there, they, plant, they, they graduated another 300 church planters that for the last two years have been planted. Just the gospel is moving, yet there's all this persecution. And I remember asking this guy, Kamal, who, who was over this whole area. I was like, Kamal, like all this persecution, like these threats, this violence, like, what, like what, how do you get people to keep going forward? Like we can't even, like in the States, we don't even share our faith if we get like a negative review on Yelp. You know what I'm saying? Like, right? Any kind of persecution, right? Like how do you keep going? And he goes, oh, that's very simple. He goes, we all die. And I just remind people, dying of old age in your bed is a really boring way to go. He goes, I want to die spreading the gospel. And I thought, let's go. Let's be a people who rather than cowering in fear, that move forward and press in what God has for us. Hebrews 12, 
Man, this verse, I, I just want us to be memorizing this verse. This is, this is one of the first passages of Scripture I memorized as, an, as a young Christian. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Those th- the world, the flesh, the devil, trying to keep you from following Jesus trying to keep you from living your mission and your call and your purpose. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And how do we do it? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him. It was with joy, it tells us, that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's a war, a spiritual war. And, and the Lord is looking for soldiers. Not to war with culture, not to war with neighbors, not to war with the people around you, but to go to war with the spiritual forces that are pulling souls away, that are drawing them into the world, into the darkness, that are filling them with hate. And that we would be a church that says, no, 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 we're called to be the light of the world. We're called to be the salt of the earth. We're called to be a city on the hill that will not be hidden. And we do it through radical obedience to a Savior who has saved us. And we will follow him all the days of our life. And so here's what I want to say. Listen, if you are not a follower of Jesus, Jesus is calling you. He, He will save you. It tells us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not about earning his love. Jesus has already earned it. That's grace. It's about receiving it and believing it. And if that's you today, today's the day. I just want to invite you into that. And if you are a follower of Jesus, man, would today be a renewal of your faith? You're feeling tired, you're feeling beat down, you're feeling exhausted, you're feeling like, why do I keep doing this? I keep falling short, I keep failing. Guess what? There's grace to keep picking you back up and keep pressing forward. And you have a mission that is so incredibly important that God has placed you in one of the darkest regions of the entire world for such a time as this. Well, don't be a casualty of this war, but press forward in the front lines of showing the grace and love of Jesus. Lord, would you lead our church, the brothers and sisters in this room, into this battle? And would we find our protection in your grace? Would we find our courage in your grace? Would we find our hope in your grace? Would we learn to see? Would you, open, would you give us spiritual eyes to see the unseen realm around us and the battle that is taking place? And would you give us a new vigor and a new passion to follow you, to trust your word, to rely on you through prayer and connect deeply with you as your disciples? And as we do this, Lord, man, would we run out of chairs in this building? Would we run out of space at our tables as we invite neighbors over? Would we see kids fall in love with you more than falling in love with the world. Would you do a radical work in us and through us in this moment in time? We pray all this by the power of your name.